Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. It could be a big flipping deal for the president. John Berman here in for Anderson, the man who for decades kept Donald Trump's books, ran his charity, even signed his tax returns, is now cooperating with federal authorities in the Michael Cohen investigation. Now, there may be no human being on Earth who knows more about the president's finances, and he's been talking to the feds. Let that sink in, because you know President Trump has. So that's obviously major news. But even as we reported, our thoughts are with Senator John McCain and his family. Today, they announced that he has decided to discontinue medical treatment for brain cancer. Now, when he made this speech, we're going to show you from last October, accepting an award from Joe Biden, who lost his son, Beau, to the same disease. Senator McCain was already well into a battle that he knew almost no one ever wins. I'm the luckiest guy on earth. I have served America's cause, the cause of our security and the security of our friends, the cause of freedom and equal justice all my adult life. I haven't always served it well. I haven't even always appreciated what I was serving. But among the few compensations of old age is the acuity of hindsight. I see now that I was part of something important that drew me along in its wake, even when I was diverted by other interests. I was, knowingly or not, along for the ride as America made the future better than the past. And we owe him our thanks for that. We'll have more on the senator's condition a bit later in the program. First, though, the commander-in-chief, whom he has so often been at odds with. And we should note that the president made no mention of Senator McCain at a Republican event in Ohio. Not a single mention, nor a single nod to the McCain family. Nothing. Maybe it's a lack of compassion. Or maybe the president has something else on his mind. Or more likely, someone. Someone who knows virtually all there is to know about the Trump organization, Donald Trump's charity, and the president's own finances. He is the inside man of all inside men. And he's worked for the president, and before that, the president's father, since the original godfather was practically in its first run. Now, keeping them honest, such people used to be called cooperators because that's what they do. They cooperate with police, with the FBI, with prosecutors to help make cases. The president, though, sees it differently. This whole thing about uh, flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping for 30, 40 years. I've been watching flippers. Everything's wonderful. And then they get 10 years in jail and they they flip on whoever the next highest Mm -hmm. one is or as high as you can go. It, It almost ought to be outlawed. The president on Fox News, he was talking about Michael Cohen, his old consigliere, who implicated him in court Tuesday in the payoffs to Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. Yesterday, it was revealed that the tabloid publisher who was involved in both arrangements is also cooperating with authorities. And today we learned that Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg 
was also given immunity and has cooperated in the Cohen case. The reaction from so many who have followed President Trump for years was, wow. He's the Alan Weisselberg mentioned in the recording that Cohen secretly made as he and candidate Trump discussed what appears to have been the McDougal payoff just a few weeks before the election. Um, I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and, I've spoken, to me. and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with so what are we gonna funding. The, uh, yes. Um, and it's all the stuff, all the stuff, because, you know, you never know where that company, no, you never know where he's going to be. Gets it, but. Correct. So I'm, I'm all over that. And I spoke to Alan about it. When it comes time for the financing, which will be... Awesome. What financing? We'll have to pay you. So. No, 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 no. I got... No, no, no. Hey, no, how are you? So that's the man who implicated the president in two felonies, talking about a deal with one cooperator, publisher David Pecker, which he says he's already run by another cooperator, Alan Weisselberg. And if you're keeping score, Mr. Weisselberg makes it six Trump associates who have been cooperating in one way or another with the feds, or in Michael Cohen's case, have otherwise turned against the president. Rick Gates, Cohen, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos, David Pecker, and now Alan Weisselberg. And joining us now with more, CNN Shimon Prokipes. Shimon, what are you learning about why investigators are speaking with Alan Weisselberg? So it's really the key is the money here, right, John? It's obvious that Weisselberg here controlled a lot of the money, the flow of the money. Uh, he's named uh, as an executive in the court documents. They don't name him by name, but in the charging documents that Michael Cohen, uh, that the court filed in regards to Michael Cohen, he's in there. He's referred to as executive one, uh, and it essentially says that he reimbursed Michael Cohen for some of the hush uh, money payment. So it's understandable why the government would want to seek him at the very least uh, as a witness. What's really interesting about this is that you have between Weisselberg and Pecker, uh, who has apparently also been cooperating and was given immunity, you have all these people that are around the president uh, who have either been facing charges or perhaps could have faced charges in this deal. Uh, they have all had to worry about this, but really one person who, and the ultimate person who benefited in all of this, the president, uh, so far goes unscathed. Uh, it is a big deal here, nonetheless, that this Weisselberg would cooperate, that he, they would give him immunity. Clearly, investigators felt that the information he had was important enough uh, where they would not charge him and instead give him immunity, John. Is the immunity, and this is the big question, Shimon, is the immunity specific to information related to Michael Cohen, or does it go beyond that? What are you learning? So basically all we know is that he has not, uh, Weisselberg has not been called back uh, by the U.S. Attorney's Office, by investigators since he began his cooperation and his, since he received immunity uh, regarding the Michael Cohen uh, investigation. However, we also know, as the New York Times has been reporting, that the Manhattan DA's office is now doing its own investigation. So perhaps he could be given immunity in that investigation. And keep in mind uh, that if federal investigators think they want to pursue other things related to this, they could always bring 
him back, offer him more immunity, uh, or perhaps really make him a full-fledged cooperator mm-hmm. if they think it would help them in their investigation. And one last point, John, important in all of this is that this now also frees Weisselberg uh, from any prosecution so that he could appear before members of Congress should he be subpoenaed. He can't claim, well, I may, you know, I may, I have to mm-hmm. plead the fifth because I may be charged uh, or I could face charges in this case. So that, John, is another mm-hmm. element which I think is important for people to keep in mind. His role in this drama, not over, not That's nearly right. over. Shimon Prokipes, thanks so much. In a moment, a lawyer with experience in questioning Mr. Weisselberg and the president as well. Also, Barbara Rez, a former senior executive in the Trump organization and colleague of Alan Weisselberg. First, though, more on the man himself from 360's Randy Kay. Alan Weisselberg knows where all the financial bodies are buried. That's according to a former Trump Organization employee who spoke with CNN. Weisselberg is the chief financial officer for the Trump Organization, the top bookkeeper, who likely has knowledge of everything from Donald Trump's tax returns to the hush money paid to silence two women claiming they had an affair with Trump before he became president, something Trump denies. If Trump reimbursed Cohen for the payment to porn star Stormy Daniels, as his lawyer Rudy Giuliani says, then perhaps Weisselberg can corroborate that for federal prosecutors. When Trump won the White House, he put his sons and Weisselberg in charge of the family business. He has relinquished leadership and management of the Trump organization to his sons, Don and Eric, and a longtime Trump executive, Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg, who hasn't returned our calls for comment, oversees the family trust. He's prepared the president's tax returns and was the treasurer for Trump's charity. Weisselberg has also reportedly been privy to Trump's real estate transactions, both here at home and overseas, including where all the funding was coming from. There's no doubt about how vast Weisselberg's knowledge is. He has a long history with the Trump family, going back decades. In the 1970s, he was an accountant for President Trump's father, Fred Trump. He then moved over to the Trump Organization. The Wall Street Journal reported Weisselberg oversaw many of Trump's personal transactions, including household expenses, as well as the purchases of planes and boats. Tristan Snell, a former assistant attorney general who helped lead the prosecution of Trump University, says Weisselberg is the single most indispensable person in the Trump organization. In that case, he says Weisselberg knew where every dollar in the Trump organization came from and controlled where every dollar went. Over the years, Weisselberg has kept a pretty low profile. One former colleague telling The Wall Street Journal that Weisselberg, quote, fits in with the wallpaper. Suddenly, though, he seems to be a household name. Randy Kay, CNN, New York. And we have a household name of our own, CNN legal analyst and former Nixon White House counsel John Dean, who became perhaps the most famous criminal cooperator in modern history when he blew the whistle on Watergate. Also, attorney Jason Forge, who has deposed both Alan Weisselberg and the president, and Barbara Rez, former longtime Trump executive and author of All Alone on the 68th Floor, How One Woman change the face of construction. And Barbara, I want to ask you first, because you've worked within the Trump organization, is there any person who's got a better understanding, perhaps outside the family, of how that organization works than Alan Weisselberg? And I'm talking down to the nickels and dimes here. You know, I've been asked that question many times, and I've heard all the people, experts, speak to what he knows and what he doesn't know and what he controls. And I'm a little surprised, to be honest with you, because when I worked there, which is many years ago, um, Alan was working in Brooklyn. 
And that was working for Fred Trump. And he was in charge of the buildings, the uh, apartment buildings. But when he moved to New York, and I can't pinpoint the date, um, he was the chief accountant. He was a person that paid the bills, that made sure the payroll was right, um, that um, did sent out the uh, invoices and things like that. He had a title. He was an executive vice president. But he was not a member of the inner circle by any stretch of the imagination. So this is news to me. Uh, perhaps over time, things have developed with Alan. He certainly was a very low-key guy. He was the kind of a guy who may have, I'm not sure, called Donald, who, which is what we called him, may have called him Mr. Trump. He was, he was a quiet guy, and he was unassuming. But the money goes through him. The money goes through him, which is so key here. And the big question, does the immunity extend beyond the Cohen case? And is Weisselberg providing information to prosecutors on the president's business dealings, the president's business dealings and finances beyond Cohen? Jason. Well, there's no way of knowing exactly how far the immunity extends. But I do think, John, the, the key here is the timing of it. This is either great news for the president or terrible news for the president. If and this is what it appears to be the case. If uh, Mr. Weisselberg was already immunized and has already testified and then Mr. Cohen pled guilty, it would seem that the investigators have already gotten all of the testimony from him that they wanted and they haven't charged or attempted to charge Mr. Trump, in which case that would be great news for him. If, on the other hand, this immunity is a more recent development and they're continuing to investigate these same transactions, well, that's terrible news for the president. Well, we, we do know that the Justice Department, the Southern District, and the Mueller investigation separately are operating under the assumption that you can't indict a sitting president. So that might limit them in how far they go in terms of chasing down the president's role in this. John Dean, to you, prosecutors don't just hand out immunity to people for nothing. They really only give it to someone if that person has something of value to offer, correct? That's generally true. There are different types of immunity. Uh, <clears throat> generally, there, there is something called equitable immunity, which involves no statute. The judge isn't involved. The prosecutors just assure the person they won't be prosecuted. There's also statutory immunity, and it can be transactional, which covers everything, or use immunity, which is very limited. Now, you don't necessarily have to be a cooperator to get immunity. If you take and invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege, and don't and refuse to testify, the uh, prosecutor can force you to testify by immunizing you. And that may be what's happened in several of these cases, mm -hmm. that they have not been volunteered, uh, but rather uh, they have been forced to testify. That's interesting. So they use immunity to push to get the information that they want. So, Barbara, we've been talking yes. about how much the president values loyalty or says that he values Loyalty. We now know that Michael Cohen has flipped to a, to a large extent. David Pecker testifying with immunity. Weisselbrook testifying with immunity. How does he react to what he perceives as disloyalty? Uh, he gets very angry. He's, he, he's very volatile and he must be seething about all of this. Because his perception of loyalty is different from the rest of us. We, we look at loyalty as keeping somebody's secrets and, and being fair and working hard and doing all the things you need to do for your employer. Uh, he sees it as being doing exactly what you're told, regardless of what that is, whether it's legal or not legal, and keeping your mouth shut. So uh, 
that kind of loyalty, I don't know how far it'll go. I don't think it goes to a jail cell for anyone, not for anyone. So, so Jason, to that point, you've actually had the chance to depose Alan Weisselberg when you were prosecuting the Trump University lawsuit. What was he like during that deposition? How far did his loyalty to the president extend? And we also have some hints in some other recent cases as well, don't we? We, we do, John. And the reality is he was a fairly cooperative witness. He is definitely loyal to Mr. Trump. He is one of the few people who refer to him as Donald. He's been with the family for the better part of a half century. And as a witness, he was somewhat reluctant, but I would not say that he was not that he was dishonest in any way. I think he did provide testimony that could be interpreted as potentially damaging to Mr. Trump. He mentioned the frequency with which those two interact. They're on the same floor, and there was certainly information that Mr. Weisselberg learned that could be imputed to President Trump, now President Trump, uh, through Mr. Weisselberg. And given the nature of the relationship as he described it, it could have been damaging to Mr. Trump. It didn't seem like he would protect the president at his own expense to you? To go so far as to be dishonest, no, I don't think so. I certainly think he would be reluctant. He is the prototypical uh, Trump insider. I do think he is very loyal to the president, but I don't think he would go so far as to lie. So, John Dean, knowing the facts of the Cohen plea and what he is accused of doing, do you think prosecutors would have needed to grant Weisselberg immunity to secure Cohen's guilty plea? Uh, Would it make sense that he would be used in an expanded role beyond just the Cohen investigation? You know, there may well, John, have been a race, a quiet race to the courthouse after that raid on Cohen's uh, uh, hotel, apartment, office, what have you. Uh, And Pecker might have been in there before uh, Cohen got in and given him enough information to uh, solve their their issues that they were looking at. So it's not clear. We just don't have enough facts yet uh, as to who needed what to uh, either be immunized or prosecuted. But it was resolved when, of course, uh, Cohn decided himself he would plead. John, just to ask you again, in your experience here, and you've got unique experience in this, when you start to see people testifying with immunity, when you start to see, in the case of Michael Cohen, flipping overtly, what does that signify in an investigation? Well, it's a standard procedure in most investigations, both in uh, high-level white-collar as well as uh, mafia cases, where they go to the lower levels and they grant immunity. Uh, they build their case step-by-step step and figure out what they need and, and how to get it and who to get it from. And that's what we're watching. We're about, uh, uh, I'd say we're about midway through all this right now. Midway, a long way to go then. Barbara, you told Politico earlier this week that you believe the president is, quote, unraveling. What exactly have you seen that led you to that conclusion? I spoke to Michael Cruz, who wrote that article today, to try to put in context what I was saying. I think I really meant that the... the, the um, the, 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 the story of Trump, the, the persona of Trump was unraveling, the lie, if you'll have it, that he was falling apart in the sense that we were now seeing all the different elements of what he had put together as this one persona. And I think that's what's coming apart, that people are realizing now that he's doing different things and he's lying about different things and he's losing certain uh, support and stuff like that. And I do think it's falling apart. I think that the myth 
is what I call it. The myth of Trump is now going away. And, and, and Jason, finally to you, where do you think, what does your gut tell you about where these immunity deals fit into the larger investigation? Do you think that the prosecutors of the Southern District would have given immunity to Pecker, to David Pecker, and, and to Weisselberg just to get this guilty plea on one part of their case against Michael Cohen? Do you think that's it? You know, John, my gut tells me that is that is it vis-a-vis the president. There may be other individuals within the Trump organization, but I don't think they're planning on doing anything more significant vis-a-vis the president. And here's why. It seems that they had enough information that they could have at least charged Michael Cohen with a conspiracy. And it could have been a conspiracy with individual three. And that individual three could have been President Trump. Right. He, Cohen said enough at his guilty plea hearing, and even the assistant U.S. attorney said enough at that plea hearing. And yet they didn't include a, a conspiracy charge, even if they're not actually charging the, the president. And that, to me, indicates mm-hmm. that they're not planning on moving higher up the chain. Very interesting perspective. Jason Forrest, John Dean, Barbara Rez, thanks so much. Next, the president's latest attacks on his attorney general, his unprecedented demand that Jeff Sessions investigate his enemies, and Sessions' life expectancy on the job. Also, one of the 11 jurors who voted to convict Paul Manafort on all 18 counts, and she's a Trump supporter. Anderson asked her what convinced her ahead on 360. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. Festivus came early today for Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and the airing of grievances is coming right from the top. You'll remember this week we've seen the president slam him on Fox, then we saw the Attorney General hit back saying, quote, While I am Attorney General, the actions of the Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. Then today, the president took another swing. He tweeted, by all appearances, mockingly, Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. Jeff, this is great, what everyone wants. So look into all of the corruption on the other side, including deleted emails, Comey lies and leaks, mother conflicts, McCabe struck, Page or FISA abuse, Christopher Steele and his phony and corrupt dossier, the Clinton Foundation, illegal surveillance of the Trump campaign, this entire list that the president likes to go on and on and on with. Come on, Jeff, the president says, you can do it. The country is waiting. That long to-do list is kind of the president's greatest hits. They're all scandals as he sees it, but it's hard to know what to make of any of it because the president shorthanded them all to cram them into a pair of tweets. What we can say is they all involve the president's political or legal adversaries. And what those two tweets represent is a sitting president lobbying his attorney general to go after them, go after his enemies. This is something that presidents simply do not do. Then again, they also don't spend so much time or even any time trash-talking their attorneys general or letting them twist slowly in the wind, which might not go on much longer. Several key lawmakers, most notably Lindsey Graham, have signaled it that it would be okay for the president to let Jeff Sessions go, but only after the midterms. 
However, another Republican is sending the opposite message. Bizarrely, there are people in this body now talking like the attorney general will be fired, should be fired. I'm not sure how to interpret the comments of the last couple of hours, but I guess I would just like to say as a member of the Judiciary Committee and as a member of this body, I find it really difficult to envision any circumstance where I would vote to confirm a successor to Jeff Sessions if he is fired because he's executing his job rather than choosing to act as a partisan hack. As you might imagine, that leaves plenty to talk about. Joining us, Axe Files host and former Obama White House senior advisor David Axelrod, also Neil Katyal, who served as acting solicitor general in the last administration. So, David, the president is at it again for a second day, this time going as far to call Attorney General Jeff Sessions Jeff, goading him to investigate, quote, the corruption on the other side. Within 24 hours of Jeff Sessions warning he won't make political use of the Justice Department, what do you make of it all? Well, look, this goes to the core of the president's uh, campaign here, which is to say nothing's on the legit that uh, that the the Justice Department is infested uh, with Democrats who won't uh, go after their own and are going after him uh, for political reasons. And it is uh, it is grossly uh, unfair and unjust and wrong and destructive. But I think he is trying to lay the predicate for the time when he will remove the attorney general to try and get a hold of all these investigations. I think that time is coming. And I think that's what this is all about. And, and Neil, it really does seem as if the president is specifically trying to press the buttons of the attorney general. The attorney general put out this statement and says, I will not make decisions based on politics here. And it seems like the president is trying to order him to do so. Yes, but I don't think this is just about the attorney general, Jeff Sessions. I think this is about Donald Trump and his views about law enforcement. I mean, put simply... Donald J. Trump does not believe in law enforcement. He doesn't believe in the law part of it. Do you know he tramples on the Constitution willy-nilly? And he doesn't believe in the enforcement part of it either. And you saw that most predominantly this week when he said, you know, he attacked the practice of flipping, which is what prosecutors do every day in this country, day in and day out, in exchange, give someone a lenient sentence in exchange for information. That is like bread and butter of what prosecutors do all the time. And Trump went and condemned that practice. And, you know, that if, if that were the law, you know, thousands of criminals would be on the streets today. It can't possibly be the law. It's so dangerous. And that's why we've never had a president say anything like this mishmash of horrible stuff about law enforcement that's been coming out of this person's Twitter feed. Well, well let me ask you, because I spoke to Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez today, uh, and he had something very much along those lines to say, listen... What I also worry about is the fact that constant attacks upon the attorney general, I think, weakens the authority of the attorney general. Uh, it, I think it damages, uh, damages morale within the Department of Justice. And he went on to tell The Washington Post, if we ever got to a place where it was routine or common for the president to question the judgment of the attorney general, that would not be a good place. Aren't we already there on all those fronts? I mean, I really applaud Attorney General Gonzalez for saying this. I mean, those of us who spend time at the Justice Department know how damaging and how corrosive the things that President Trump has said about the Justice Department, about our prosecutors, and about our attorney general, how much that corrodes confidence in the rule of law and what prosecutors have to do every day. So I'm really glad he said it. And David, there's an irony here, which is that the attorney general maybe more than any other cabinet member, is actually implementing the policies 
of the president of the United States. That's true in almost every other way. And uh, he is he is following through on the Trump platform, whether it's immigration or, uh, or or law enforcement or, you know, the whole range of things that Trump campaigned on. Uh, I disagree with many of them, but he's been faithful uh, to the president in that regard. But let's be clear what this is all about. Donald Trump does not feel like he should be accountable. He doesn't want to be accountable uh to the law. He doesn't want to be accountable uh, to the news media. And he's trying to uh, destroy and create, uh, uh, you know, profound uh, cynicism and doubt uh, about uh, about these institutions that our founding fathers created or, or empowered uh, for this express purpose to, to, to hold people in office accountable. I mean, it, you know, I, I always uh, I always bridle when people say it's fundamentally un-American, but this is really un-American. This goes right to the core of our constitutional republic. David Axrod, Neil Katyal, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Up next, inside the Paul Manafort trial, a juror tells Anderson that even though she is a Trump supporter, she does not want him to pardon Manafort. And later, we'll take you to Hawaii, where Hurricane Lane is already causing flooding and landslides as it approaches Oahu and Maui. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com slash CNN. Tonight, we have an inside look at the Paul Manafort trial from someone who was right in the thick of it. As you know, earlier this week, the president's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, was convicted on eight felony counts. Paula Duncan was on that jury. Earlier today, she told Anderson what prevented Manafort from being convicted on all 18 counts, why she doesn't think the president should pardon him, and what, as a Trump supporter, she thinks about the Mueller investigation as a whole. Take a look. Paula, thanks very much for joining us. You obviously have a a very interesting up-close view of this case. You probably know it better than just about anybody else out there. I know you've said that you would have convicted Paul Manafort on all counts. Can you explain why that wasn't the outcome? We had one juror who held out her vote. Um, we, cu- we had two, one that flip- would flip-flop from one day to the next, um, would say she was pressured and change her vote. We had some of that, but in the end, it was one person who, even though we could put the, p- the paperwork in front of them again and again, they said they had reasonable doubt and therefore, that's that's their right as a juror. Uh, we tried very hard to make sure that we weren't a hung jury. Eleven of us, ten for sure, were positive p- from almost day two. And the rest of us, the other two, were not sure. And we spent a lot of time deliberating and doing due diligence like we were supposed to as a jury. And in the end, even though we could tell her that the defendant met the criteria— to charge him as guilty, she would in the end say she just had reasonable doubt. I I read that you said, um, I wanted Paul Manafort to be innocent, but he wasn't. I know you're a a supporter of of President Trump and you're skeptical of the special counsel investigation as a whole. To those who may hear that and wonder, well, why did you vote to convict? What would you say? Because your civic duty as a juror, as Judge Ellis said, was to, the defendant has the presumption of innocence, And you accept the witnesses, you accept the evidence, and you make your judgment based on those things. And there are those that said I shouldn't have been a juror because 
they say I was biased, according to social media. At least that's what my daughters are telling me. And that's not true. If I were biased, I would have said I would have been the holdout vote. And I was not the holdout vote. Well, well, number one, I would recommend your daughters not read social media because I can tell you from personal experience, no good will come of that. Um, But I got to say, I mean, you give me faith in the system, the fact that you're exactly the kind of juror somebody would want, that you can put aside whatever your political beliefs might be and and just look at the evidence and make a decision based on that. I think coming out the Trump hat thing wasn't going to be part of my what I had to say until the last bit. But I thought, you know what, if it shows people that we can have differences of opinions and still work together to get justice done, I thought it was an inspiring thing to hear about. You, you, the Trump hat thing for people who know you, you have America, Make America Great hat, Make America Great Again hat, but you kept it in your car. I did. And it's actually my husband's hat, just okay. for clarification. We don't need to. <laughs> okay. But I mean, we're both Trump supporters. And um, we feel that President Trump deserves a chance to try to do the job without all of the other stuff going on around him. Unless, of course, it's illegal. The law is the law. And my job as a juror and the rest of my fellow jurors was to make sure that the law was upheld And I feel we did. I wish we could have convicted him on all 18 counts. I feel there was enough information to do that. And that's—I thought America needed to know it was 11 to 1. I I know you've you've said that you believe the the Mueller investigation is is a witch hunt. If the Mueller investigation hadn't happened, there's no guarantee that Paul Manafort would have ever uh, been brought to justice for these financial crimes— Does that justify the Mueller investigation at all to you? No, he should be he should be punished for his crimes. It just shouldn't have come about in the way that it did, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think the president should pardon Paul Manafort or how would you feel if, if the president pardoned Paul Manafort? I feel it would be a grave mistake for President Trump to pardon Paul Manafort. Why? Justice was done. The evidence was there. And that's where it should stop. One of the things that the president campaigned on was draining the swamp. And that's obviously something I think people on many sides, all sides of the political aisle, you know, don't like the way Washington works. To you, is Paul Manafort part of the swamp? Is he sort of the epitome of the swamp? Well, there's the irony. Maybe he is. I think my favorite thing that Trump said, of course, is make America great again. And I've gotten a lot of flack over this. And I've had people call it, calling worried about my safety. And I like to think I'm braver than that. Um, when peaceful Americans' views are silenced from fear, then America is certainly not a great country. So maybe what we need are caps that say, make America kind again. Do you think that's a hat that the president would wear? Make America kind again? I challenge President Trump to wear a hat that says, make America kind again. Because I think once we're kind, then we will be great. Tolerance is important. I want people to get out and vote. No matter who you vote for, get out and vote. 
that's your duty. Voting and serving on a jury, that's, that's so important to who we are. So many people have fought for that right. And I don't care what side you're on, just vote. And Paula Duncan, thank you. Thanks. What an interesting discussion. Sad news tonight about Senator John McCain. He has discontinued his treatment for brain cancer. As tributes to the senator's heroism and his service pouring from Washington, we'll get the very latest next. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Tributes are pouring in for Senator John McCain after it was announced today that he is stopping treatment for brain cancer. A statement from the McCain family reads in part, quote, John has surpassed expectations for his survival, but the progress of disease and the inexorable advance of age render their verdict. With his usual strength of will, he has now chosen to discontinue medical treatment. Senator McCain, of course, is a man who has dedicated his life to serving his country, a war hero, a longtime senator. And as he and his family face this difficult time, partisan lines are falling away as his colleagues in Congress send their thoughts. We want to play you some more now of his speech from last October when he accepted the Liberty Medal at the National Constitution Center. I've had the good fortune to spend 60 years in service to this wondrous land. It's not been perfect service, to be sure. And there were probably times when the country might have benefited a little less of my help. But I've tried to deserve the privilege as best I can. And I've been repaid a thousand times over with adventures, with good company, with the satisfaction of serving something more important than myself, of being a bit player in the extraordinary story of America. And I am so grateful. Wonderful in so many ways to hear those words tonight. Joining me now, Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Chief Political Analyst, Chief Political Correspondent Dana Bash. Dana, give us the latest. What are you hearing from your sources about the senator? Well, as you mentioned, his family has said that he is no longer going to have medical treatment that it has that is underway and has been at least all day. And what that means is they're trying to make him as comfortable as possible. Look, it is no secret. And Dr. Gupta can tell you this and has since we broke the news on this very program uh, a year ago, July, that uh, Senator McCain has this horrible, horrible brain cancer. Uh, that this would be the thing that finally Mm. catches up to him, finally Mm. reminds us all that John McCain, who survived five and a half years being tortured in isolation Mm -hmm. uh, in a North Vietnamese prison, um, is a mere mortal. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and it's hard for even those who Mm. are the closest to him to, to realize that. And so that is what people are grappling with. I've talked to some of his friends and colleagues today who, even though, again, like all of us, have known this day is coming, are still finding it kind of shocking that mm-hmm. the end appears to be near. But listening to his words from last fall, you're reminded yeah. John McCain doesn't feel cheated. He feels so all. appreciative for every single day that he's had. Mm-hmm. Sanjay, what are the factors that a patient takes into account when, when choosing to forego additional treatment? Well, my, my, you know, usually almost since the beginning of the diagnosis, uh, you know, 13 months ago, as Dana mentioned, 
uh, the conversations start. Uh, here are the treatment options. Here are the likelihood of having some benefit from these treatment options. And here's the toll those treatments are going to take on your body. And, John, it's a constant balance after that. Uh, the, the, the decision at this point really comes down to uh, are these treatments working? Are they continuing to, to uh, affect the tumor and actually shrink the tumor? Uh, and what is the toll that it's taking on my body? Does the risk benefit still play out? Are the benefits greater than the risks? And I think it's, it's a, again, a discussion that's been 13 months probably, but this is the inflection point where they say that that's no longer the case. The benefits are no longer greater than the risks. And Dana, obviously you've mentioned that tributes are pouring in from around the country, but especially Mm -hmm. from his colleagues who have served Mm -hmm. with him, so many who have served with him, some for a very, very long time. What have you heard? Well, yeah, and what is remarkable about Senator McCain is that he, he, he's, he's a throwback to an era which seems like many, many moons ago, but actually wasn't that long ago, where there is and was genuine respect across the aisle. Um, he is somebody who still, you know, up until the last year has taken under his wing uh, Democrats, taken them on his world travels uh, to places very far flung to, to, to talk about America's place in the world, to teach them about how important it is to be a senator, uh, to have checks and balances. And so all of those relationships that he forged, particularly on those mm-hmm. foreign trips, uh, are still very real, very strong. And you, you mentioned the fact that he, um, you know, he always has said, particularly in the past six months to a year, uh, that people shouldn't feel sorry for him. And boy, does he mean it. He mm-hmm. has lived every single mm-hmm. day to its fullest. He, he fought hard, he loved hard, and still is uh, doing all those things. And it is one mm-hmm. of the things that makes John McCain um, mm-hmm. somebody so unique in our time and ultimately American history. Sanjay, without the treatment now that he is foregoing, how fast will the cancer progress? Uh, this is one of the most aggressive cancers, uh, you know, in the body. It's it's tough to say that. I, I you know, this uh, I started my neurosurgery training 25 years ago, John, and in the last quarter of a century uh, following this, we haven't made a lot of progress in terms of survival with this particular tumor, glioblastoma, a tumor that originates in the brain as opposed to spreading from elsewhere in the body. Um, I, I, it, it depends in terms of how fast it grows, but if it's not treated, uh, it's certainly it's it's going to to grow and uh, eventually start to push on other areas of his brain. So, Dan, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this because I'd much rather talk about the tributes that are pouring in. Mm-hmm. But what have we heard from the White House? Uh, I know the president okay. had an event in Ohio where zip, nothing, not a single word for John McCain or his family. Nothing. And, and you know, look, I think this kind of speaks volumes about where we are in our times and, of course, in this relationship or lack thereof uh, between the president and John McCain. Um, on the upside, he didn't trash John McCain in his speech, as he has done uh, in recent campaign speeches, talking about his health care vote. Uh, instead, maybe I'll just talk about what John McCain wrote in his last book, whether we think each other right or wrong and our views are the issues of the day. We owe, owe each other our respect as long as our character merits respect. I know Cindy McCain and the McCain family know that the entire nation is with them tonight. Um, Dana Bash, Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Let's check in with Chris Cuomo now to see what he's working on for Cuomo prime time in just a few minutes. Chris. All right. Big news today. Who would have thought that at the end of such a traumatic week, we would get the biggest piece of new information. The man at the center 
of the money for Donald Trump, the CFO of the Trump organization, Weisselberg. Why was he given immunity? What does it mean? And we have as our first guest tonight, John, an ethics lawyer who fought with the White House about disclosures, who says he knew this day was coming. We'll take you through it. Some said it would never happen. Weisselberg would never talk. He's talking. Chris Cuomo, looking forward to that. Appreciate it. Hurricane Lane is pounding Hawaii's big island with unrelenting rain as the storm still churns the Pacific. The latest on its projected path and the damage it's done so far. That's next. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hurricane Lane is dumping just a ton of rain on parts of Hawaii's Big Island. Nearly three feet has fallen in one spot, causing serious flooding, landslides, road closures. It is now a Category 1 storm. It is south of Honolulu, heading north slowly. Our Nick Watt, he is on Oahu. He joins me now with the very latest. Nick, how are things looking? Well, John, here in Oahu, the rain has just started within the past five or ten minutes. We're expecting the storm to get here within the next few hours and dump a lot of rain. Now, as you mentioned, Big Island got hit hard. It got hit first. Catastrophic flooding down there. Up to 40 inches of rain in places. That's four zero inches. So now the ground is just saturated. So any more rain that falls is just a flash flood. Now, some tourists down there had to be rescued from a rental home over in Hilo. Further north in Maui. The airport's still open, but no flights going in or out. And wildfires in Maui. We, we don't know how they started, but we know for sure that the winds generated by this hurricane have been pushing those flames. One of those fires actually jumped a highway. More than 100 homes were evacuated. And as I say, we are now just waiting for this storm to really hit Oahu. Now, it's a Category 1. It's moving slower, which is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing in that it's going to linger over places, dump a lot of water. If it dumps half as much here as it did on the Big Island, the mayor says some major problems. Yeah, if the John. flooding is your concern, you don't want it moving slowly. How unusual is it, Nick, for Hawaii to be dealing with hurricane threats? Very unusual. I mean, the last direct hit they had was way back in 1992, more than 25 years ago. That, So it is rare because normally these hurricanes, yeah, there are a lot of hurricanes in the Pacific, but they track south of the Hawaiian Islands. The other thing is, you know, it's a big ocean and the Hawaiian Islands are just little specks here, so they don't often get hit. They don't often get hit. But this one, there was a fear that there was going to be a direct hit, but now they really think that in the next 12 hours or so, the storm moving north is going to get, it's going to weaken and it's going to get pushed out to the west. So we're not going to get a landfall of that center of the hurricane, but we are going to get wind, we are going to get rain. And here in Honolulu, they're standing by waiting to see just how bad it gets before the storm moves out to sea and away from the islands. John? Hopefully it moves off before it hits. Nick Watt, thanks you very much. Uh, Don't forget, uh, Full Circle Anderson's daily interactive newscast on Facebook. You can pick up some of the stories. You can see it weeknights at 625 Eastern on Facebook.com slash Anderson. The news continues, so I'll hand it over to Chris Cuomo. Cuomo Primetime starts now. 
Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.